0: Hey, if you want to grab a Bible or turn your Bible on, you can do that. We're in Psalm 63. If you don't have a Bible, you can look down in the uh, row in front of you to the left or right. There may be a Bible within reach. If you don't have one or not have that uh, translation, please uh, take that with you. That's our gift to you today. We're going to be in Psalm 63. And as we try to do through this series, uh, we try to integrate some music into the Psalms because the Psalms were intended to be sung, intended to be the psalm, the um, hymn book of the church or the hymn book of the Old Testament. And So as we get into it today we're gonna do the same thing. So before we actually read the text we're going to allow the words of the text to begin to meditate on them, to allow the melody to begin to sink into the heart. I think song has a way of uh, impacting us more than just spoken word and so let's allow uh, God's Word to permeate our thoughts and our minds in Psalm 63.
1: Oh God, you are my God And earnestly I seek you My soul thirsts for you My flesh pants for you Oh God, you are my God and earnestly I seek you my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints
0: for you. Verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. And because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword, and they shall be a portion for the jackals. But but the king shall rejoice in God. And all who swear my hymn exalt, for the mouths of liars will be silenced.
1: So, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land. Where there is no water, so I've looked upon your face. So we sing it. Oh God, you are my God. And my soul thirsts for you. And my flesh.
0: our first priority today, we want to acknowledge that, Lord, you're with us. Think of the words of Psalm 42 as the deer pants for streams of water. So may our soul today, Father, pant for you, O God. May our soul today thirst for you, for the living God. May today be the day that we can say it was good to be with God. Lord, I'd ask in Jesus' name that you'd show us our true need, Father, that uh, today wouldn't just be about coming to church, but today would really be about the church and the presence of God, allowing you to speak to us and enlightening our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the truth of who you are. So that because we now know you, we can respond to you, worship you, enjoy you, live for you, Father, and understand life in a way that it, it takes away the darkness and the challenges because we see you better, that we can walk and know that you're with us in the midst of all things. So Father, thank you for being here. But cause us to be aware, in Jesus' name, amen. So what kind of language is Psalm 63. When you hear the words of that psalm, uh, what kind of? how would you describe that? Oh God, you're my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. You ready for this? My body longs for you. Your body ever long for God? On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because your love is better than life, my lips shall praise you. That's not the language of confession. It's not the language of forgiveness. It's not even the language of petition. Rather, in somewhat embarrassing ways, it's the language of desire. I want you. I need you. I long for you. How does that describe your relationship with God? Was that last week? On your bed through the watches of the night, just your desires and passions, knowing they need to encounter the presence of God? I'll be real honest, it's okay. It wasn't my week either. You know, where does this passion come from? I mean, you read the Psalms and sometimes, you know, and we'll get into this. Sometimes I think we almost want to say to David or to the Psalmist, "Hey, calm down. You know, can you take it a step down, buddy? You know, what is it that's going on in your life? How, where are these emotions coming from? Because the Psalms are just raw. They're open, and it's looking into the heart, the human heart, and its brokenness, its frailty, and yet, and its desires before the presence of God. And then comparing our life to that experience and saying, how much of this." needs to be a part of my life, how much of this really is a part of my life? Because see, what David describes in Psalm 63 is adoration. He's describing a process of praise and adoration, and what I want to do as we jump in is to look at three aspects of that. First of all, the power of adoration. And this psalm, I think better than any other psalm, describes the power of praise and adoration on the heart and on your identity and on your outlook in life. So he's going to describe the power of adoration, but also the parts of it. And then finally, I think we need to ask, do we have the passion for it? Could we say something like this? Or what does that look like in my life? And if we don't have that, why is it? So the power, the parts, and finally the passion. So let's jump in. In verse 1 of Psalm 63, O God, you're my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now before we understand those words, I think we need to jump into actually the title, because in the title he gives us a little bit of reference concerning where David is, and to find out that David is actually the author of this psalm. And so it says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness in Judea. So there's a context, there's a storyline, and if you come down to verse 11, you'll notice the word king. So this is David after he's taken the throne, he's the king, and yet in verse 9 it says there are those who are seeking to take his life. So David is the king, he's on the throne, and yet for whatever reason, he's in the wilderness and there are those who are seeking to take his life. Now those are some pretty good clues to go to 2 Samuel 17-19. through We're not going to go there, but that's the context of the psalm. Because if you go to 2 Samuel and you read that this week in chapter 17, 18, 19, David is on the run from his own son. See, Absalom, his son, has has led this rebellion and he has removed David from, from the throne. David is away from his family. He's away from the throne, away from his kingdom. He's on the run. There's a few people with him and he's in danger of now losing his life. That's a pretty bad day. I mean, it's a pretty bad day when your own child is trying to kill you. But it's a pretty bad day when you've also lost your job, you've lost your home, you've lost your kingdom, you've lost your power, you've lost your family. Everything is taken from you. How do you respond? And just if, if you could imagine it getting worse, it actually does get worse because, see, the reason all of these events are taking place, it's all David's fault, and he knows it. The reason all of these events, the reason Absalom is rebelling, the reason he's lost his power, the reason he's on a run, the reason someone is trying to take his life, it's all his fault. And David knows that. Because see, what happened is if you go back many years earlier, before Absalom was even born, David had an affair. He fell in lust with a woman named Bathsheba. And after he had this affair, he actually had Bathsheba's husband murdered. And see, later on, David was convicted. He he came clean, and the prophet Nathan came to him and said, David, you're forgiven. You know, even this can be forgiven. Adultery, murder, betrayal, all of those things amazingly can be forgiven. And yet, Nathan says to him, yet the sword will not depart from your house. Now, how do we translate translate that today? There's gonna to be some major consequences. Are you with me? Adultery is one thing. There's some serious, painful consequences just to that. And then not only adultery, but treason, murder, all of that stuff, it just begins to mess and direct with the family to wreck with yourself, to wreck with life, and all Nathan's saying, he's not saying, hey, God's coming after you, he's just saying, listen, when you make those kind of decisions, there are harmful consequences that are going to come. But God is gonna use those things. And so here's David on the run, and so what I wanna show you, and the reason I'm taking this time to lay down the context of this passage is when you get to verse 11, he says something that is absolutely shocking, surprising. Because he says in verse 11, in the way he describes himself, he says, but the king. Now realize he's in the desert. He's lost his kingdom. He's lost his family. He's lost his power. There's nothing kingly about David. And yet he calls himself the king. Yet the king shall exalt in God where would you get that kind of confidence? Are you with me on that? I mean, Where do you get that kind of sense that my identity and what God's called me to do, it's still intact? See, I find in my own life that when I fail, those failures tend to define the way I see myself. And when I fail, I don't fail on David level fail. You know, that's a whole different level of sin you know, When I fail, when I mess up, I feel embarrassed, I feel foolish, I feel like a, a goof. I can't believe I've done that. I, I'm worried about what other people may say, what, what may other people think. And it begins to, I'll tell you, influence my identity, the way, what I walk in, how I get up here on Sunday morning, my confidence in the things that I do, my confidence in my relationships, and, and these are minor things. So where does David get the confidence after all of this, all of this despair, all of this running to say the king shall exalt in God? See, that's the power of adoration. The power of praise is whatever we worship defines our identity. Whatever we put at the center of life, whatever we set our hearts on, whatever we worship has the power to change the way we see ourselves, to change our identity. It's an interesting story I heard once from a pastor. He was talking about a young girl, and she was in high school, and all of her friends had boyfriends, except for her. She was the only one in this group of friends that she hung out with that wasn't in a relationship. So on Friday night, when they weren't hanging out, she was alone. Saturday night, she was alone now, she had some people that were investing into her life, some, some women that were mature in the faith, and they started praying with her and speaking into her life. And, and yet, at the end of all that, all that investment, getting into the word and prayer, she said, and, and I quote, what good is the love of God if I don't have a boyfriend? That's honesty. What good is God's love for me? What good is the death of Jesus if I don't have someone in my life to share it with. Now, what she's saying, I know God's love, but see, I'm living out of the loss of a relationship. What's defining me is my failure. And what she was worshiping, what she was meditating on, thinking about, getting her emotions from, her experiences from, was this lack of relationship. And no matter how much you told her about the love of God, the love of God was not existentially real. It wasn't what she centered her life on. Rather, she was centering her life on this failure. And that's how she saw herself, and that's how she saw the world. See, how did David get from this height of failure to saying, no, my identity's not coming from what I've done. My identity comes from what God has said. And even though I may never get back to the kingdom, I may never restore my family, I may never be right with my son, my calling is still that I'm the king. Where does that kind of confidence come from? And see, what David is showing us, and as we look at the parts of this psalm, that's the power of adoration, that if you really want to change your life, you've got to change what you worship. And if you really want to change your struggles and the things that you struggle with, you've got to ask yourself, what's at the center of my life? What do I want? And David is identifying that, and then he's transitioning, saying, what I really need, what I really want is God. And so let's jump now into the parts of that. How does that work itself out? And there's four things I want to look at as we uh, kind of walk through this passage. There's four parts to this. three I think that we can do well. One requires some help. And the first is remembrance. Second, we need to compare. Third, we need to express. And the final thing that comes that we need God's help with is satisfaction. The first thing we need to do is to remember. We need to treasure or to compare. Finally, we need to express. And then God, through the Holy Spirit, brings what David finds in verse 5, which is satisfaction. Now, here's some good news. You ready for this? You're already doing this. I find that good news. I'm not asking, and scripture's not asking you to do anything that you're not already doing every single day. There's a storyline that you're remembering every single day. There are comparisons you're making every single day. There are expressions of praise that you're making every single day. And the reason you're not satisfied? Right, because what you're centering your heart on every single day. Worship is not something we have to learn. See, worship is something we need to shift, to shift off what we're worshiping right now and to take our heart and say, what would it look like now to really worship God? Well, that's what David's doing. In the midst of his challenge, because he could be worshiping his problems, his despair, and if you read uh, 2 Samuel 17 through 19, those chapters, David's emotions are a mess. I mean, imagine that would be our experience. Depression, anger, frustration, sadness. And yet what brings him to this place of stability is shifting his heart off his failure and shifting his heart now onto his savior. And so watch this, first of all in verse two. The first step is remembrance. He says, so I have looked upon you in this sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, and because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Notice what he's saying. He's not talking about what he's doing now, but instead, he's looking to the past and remembering. I remember. Looking upon your power and your glory. See, he's remembering not just a study, a Bible study, a quiet time. He's remembering an encounter. Looking upon the glory, the greatness of God, and he's reminding his heart. We talked about last week how we need to stop listening to the heart. It's important to listen to the heart to be emotionally mature, right? For most men, uh, the way we listen to the heart is by expressing anger because we don't want to listen. I don't want to know I'm jealous. I don't want to know that I'm afraid or I'm embarrassed. Instead, we mask all of those emotions just by putting a thick layer of anger over the top. So it's important to understand the heart, but there's a time in which you've got to start speaking to the heart. That's what David's doing. He's saying, remember those encounters that you had, Remember those experiences. You know, it's the same thing you're gonna to have to do or the same thing you've done if you've ever gone to like um, marriage counseling. Uh, no confessions, but if you've gone to marriage counseling, one of the first things a counselor will do is he'll say to you or she'll say to you, what I want you to do is take a few minutes and list out all the reasons that you fell in love. List out all the things that caused you to get married. You've done that? You sit there for 10 minutes, it's kind of in silence, you're writing them down oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And, and then they start coming. At first, there's just one or two, and then, oh, yeah, oh, I remember that. And in your mind, you're starting to replay these experiences, and then the next thing you gotta do is you gotta turn and face each other. Because you're, you're the reason you're there is because you got a problem. There's anger, there's hurt, there's, there's pain, and now you face each other, and what happens? I love you because, I love you because, I love you because, and the heart begins to soften, frown begins to dissipate, humility begins to come in, and now there's a commonality because you're remembering. You're not just studying. Instead, you're bringing back sweetness to the mind, to the heart, to the soul, to the body. You're saying, I love you. In times of trouble, that's what we need. Not just to do with others, but to do in the presence of God and to remind ourselves of what God has done. But see, then once you've reminded yourself, the reason you got married maybe is because you compared. She's the best. You know, she's the one. He's the one for me. This is the person that I feel I could spend the rest of my life with. You've compared. You've remembered. You've compared. And that's what David begins to do. That's why he says, your love is better than. Your love is better than life verse 3 because your love is better than life my lips will praise you I'll praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands see what is it that you need to compare God with God you're better than my fear God you're better than my desires See, David had a real situation, God, you're better than life, meaning I could lose it. But if I lose my life, it's okay because, God, you're better. See, you want to know what God needs to be better than? Well, what are your fears? Follow the emotions. What do you think about when you've got nothing to do? I know that didn't happen, right? Right? But when you can, when you've got those moments and there's nothing going on, nothing to focus on, what comes to mind? What do you meditate on? See, whatever we go to in times of peace is really where our mind is, where our heart is. It's the things that we worship. And David is recognizing, God, you're better than my fears. You're better than my life. God, you have worth. And see, that's what it means to worship. It means simply to ascribe worth To God. Now we all do that. Because there's some things that you think are great that person next to you thinks junk. Right? That old ticket stub from a concert back in nineteen seventy nine. It's just a piece of paper. No, to you it's an experience. It's a memory. Yesterday we were over at Christ the King Catholic Church. You been there? How about on garage sale day? Blows my mind. I'm the guy in the corner just looking at everything, just Absolutely overwhelmed. Stuff is on, I mean, it's everywhere. It's just, and then my wife finds the jewelry table, the least valuable thing in my mind, right? I'm back with the power tools, sporting goods. She, she's in the jewelry table. And she's not in the jewelry table, she is in the jewelry table. And they had all this stuff all together in these little baskets, just you know, all kind of thrown in there together. But see, my wife has the ability to define worth to things people do not value. It's in the 50 cent box. But when she gets it, she has to take me aside and say, you see that marking? That says 14 karat gold. Do you see that? Do you see how the gem, you can see through it? You didn't know I was listening. (laughs) That means it's a real gem. See, she took something that was two quarters, was a dollar. But when she got it home, because she knew its value, it had a place of honor. It had a place of value. And you know what she had to do? Remember, treasure, express. What's the third step in adoration? You've got to tell somebody. Because when you have something of value, it is not joyful unless you actually express it. She had to get it out. She had to tell me about it. She had to show me the intricacies, the details. See 14 karat gold. See how it shines through the light. These are real gems. This has value. This has worth. And to the degree that I owned it, and I apologize, honey, I should have owned that more. (laughs) To that degree, I'm sharing in her joy, and it makes the worth, the value of that object even greater because now I share in what she's experiencing. Do you know what that is? That's worship. What are we doing on Sunday morning? I know sometimes we walk in and you got the blinders on, it's just me, but when we hear the voices of others or when that song comes on and you love that song and the guy next to you is just rocking it out or uh, the person next to you is really excited about that song, it brings joy, added joy to my life because I'm not just experiencing this by myself. I'm with others and their expression actually adds to my expression and therefore God becomes all the more real because we are together. Why do we gather? We don't do that alone. I mean, I know we can get in our room and sing those songs that we love but it's only when others show up and enjoy it with us that it becomes all the more meaningful, all the more rich. See, that's what David's describing. He's comparing and treasuring God but then finally he's looking at what he has and he's expressing it. And so in verse three, he says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, here's my expression. My lips will praise you. I'll say something. I will bless you as long as I live. And then he says, In your name I will lift up my hands. Now understand, this is not what people did when they sang, it's what they did when they prayed that when they gathered together in the assembly, they wouldn't raise their hands to sing necessarily. Rather, the whole assembly would stand, and when they prayed, they would all raise their hands. Could you imagine the experience, the power of just simply raising up your hands and saying, God, you are our God. Earnestly we seek you. Our soul thirsts for you. Our body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He's expressing what he's experiencing and then he goes on to say, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. Now, one of my favorite authors is a man named C.S. Lewis. Lewis. And I love Lewis because he's real honest and for some reason he has the ability to remember uh, his own spiritual journey. And it reminds me, I forget easily, reminds me of those moments where I thought the same thing. And one of the things that Lewis struggled with is this idea that God commands us to worship him. And he thought that was rather odd. Actually, he found it very embarrassing. Like a little schoolgirl that needs attention, right? Or a boy that can't get enough praise. God, it's a little strange to constantly ask us to acknowledge you, to praise you, to adore you, and he said, you know, I found that very shameful, and I found it very embarrassing. And in this book I've been reading as we've gone through this series, it's called Reflections on the Psalms. i want to just read as best I can this section for you and allow that transition from what he found shameful, he then began to see as, as incredibly valuable. He goes on to say, the most obvious fact about praise absolutely escaped me. See, I thought of praise in terms of compliments or approval or even giving honor, but I had never noticed that all enjoyment, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praise their mistress, readers their favorite poet, walkers praise the countryside. Players praise their favorite game. I had not noticed either that men spontaneously praise whatever they value. They spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. And they will say, isn't she lovely? Wasn't that glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they so speak of what they care about. I think we delight to praise whatever we enjoy Because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is a pointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. How frustrating is it to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. And so, in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him forever. Remember, treasure, express, and then verse five. My soul will be satisfied as with fat food. See, in poor countries, food is pretty healthy. Fat food requires time requires animals eating a lot, and so he's saying, I want rich food. I want fat food. I want satisfying food. Now, what he's describing in verse 5 is not something he can create because we can create the memories. We can treasure God. We can express it, but only the Holy Spirit can cause us to be satisfied and to be satisfied in it. And so he goes on to say, I remember you upon my bed, verse 6. And meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. See, the final step is when our devotion and God's Spirit come together, and there's an encounter. There's a satisfaction in God, there's a realness to God. Now, one of my favorite authors, Beyond C.S. Lewis, is a guy named Jonathan Edwards, a great Puritan. And he said something that kind of spun my world around. He said, if you don't love to praise, you need to examine your heart. Because religious people find God useful, Christians find God beautiful. That, that shook me. That shook me to the core, because he's saying, if you don't love to praise. Now, I'm not saying you've got to do it the way everyone else does it. You do it in your own way, but if you don't love to look at God, to gaze upon the beauty of God, he's saying you may just find God useful, but you haven't yet found him beautiful. Because see, when you find something beautiful, you praise it for what it is, not for what you can get. You praise it because that's the nature of who it is. And see, that's where David wants to find himself. That's where the identity really gets rewritten is when I'm not praising to get something from God. Or or even in relationships, I'm not saying something to get something from you. I'm saying it because I genuinely love you. Now, why don't we have this this level of passion? Or maybe we do. I mean, maybe you're one of those that, you know, your, your love for God is on the borderline of desire. But you see it in Scripture. I mean, Moses had it. And Moses had had some crazy experiences in God's presence. The Red Sea splitting 10 plagues. Meeting God on a mountaintop, that would be a cool experience. Getting a book after you're done. Coming down the hill, glowing. Your face is glowing. Everyone's hiding. They're they're scared of the glow around your face. He's got to veil himself. Crossing the Red Sea, seeing an entire army blown away. And yet in in Psalm, Exodus 33, at the end of his life, what's his prayer? I want to see you. God, show me your glory. I haven't had enough yet. I feel like that's a little greedy. I mean, just split Lake Evergreen, I'd be satisfied. And yet he's saying, God, I haven't had enough. Or think of Paul. Paul had some incredible expressions of God's power in his life. People dying and being raised from the dead, that'd be, that's enough. That's enough. He'd go into cities, preach the gospel. The entire economic structure of the city is turned upside down to the extent that people are angry and they're casting him out of the city and throwing rocks at him. Leaders, being put before leaders and preaching the gospel. Paul had these amazing expressions and experiences of God's power and yet in Philippians chapter three, in Philippians three verse seven, he says, whatever I have gained, I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, and hear these words, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This man was not satisfied. And it's not just in the Bible, you see it in church history. One of my favorite pastors, a man named Charles Haddon Spurgeon, wrote sermons at the age of 18 that I still don't understand. And yet he said, Some of us have known what it is to be too happy to live. The love of God has been so overwhelmingly experienced by us on a few occasions that we almost had to ask God to stop the delight. For if we could not endure it anymore, if God had not shielded his love and glory a bit, I think we would have died for joy. How about John Owens, the great author who wrote Pilgrim's Progress? He said, Oh, to behold the glory of Christ, herein would I live, herein would I die, hereon would I dwell in my thoughts and my affections, until all things here below became as dead and deformed things, and in no longer any way calling us out for my affections and embraces. Why did they share these passions, and how do we rekindle them? I think the place that God had to take David, and I hope he doesn't have to take us, is a place of desperation. I've been told you can't tell someone they're a sinner. They have to discover it. And to the degree you discover your sin, I'll tell you to that degree you will cling for a Savior. Why do people have such a hard time breaking addictions? To the degree you see your brokenness and you run for a solution, a Savior, to that degree, you find satisfaction in it. Where was David? David was at a place of despair. But see, Jesus said to us, blessed are those who know their condition. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That I think the prayer we need to pray and ask God to do this week is to say, God, show me my true condition. Because on my good days, I feel invincible. Now, those days are few. But God, show me my condition before you each day. Show me how much I need you. And then would you take those disciplines of remembrance, treasuring, expressing, and then ask the Holy Spirit, would you satisfy my soul? Would you be like Mary who took the words of the angel and pondered them in her heart? She would not let them go. Because when we're satisfied in God, that's what changes the course and the direction of our life. Hey, let me pray for us. Father, I'd ask that, Lord, whatever is too important to us, whatever is too costly to let go, whether it's the desires of the flesh or the passions of the eyes or even the bitterness of life because of missed opportunities or the pain that others have caused us, Lord, would you you enable us today to say your love is better than That, God, you are better. And as Paul said, when Christ, who is my life, appears, I'll be with him in glory. Father, the best gift we can have is what we've already been given, which is to know you. Now would we say, would we count everything as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, thank you for showing us just how satisfied the soul can be in you. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we respond and worship.